Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. So mass protests in Hong Kong uh, today, Sunday, opposing China's new national security law. And the foreign minister for China is warning against foreign meddling, quote, end quote, while Chinese and U.S. militaries are facing off uh, off the coast of Taiwan. Matthew Fisher, back with us, globalnews.ca contributor. Matthew, for 35 years, a foreign correspondent. And as we've been telling you, in Hong Kong at the time of the handover of the city by the U.K. to China in 1997. Matthew, the ma- the, thanks for joining us. The uh, massive protests that took place in Hong Kong just hours ago, they're 12 hours ahead of us. So it's a thumbing of the nose toward the Xi Jinping regime in Beijing. So now what? Well, that is the question, and I'm sure they're wondering now what in Beijing. But it was a very deliberate act that they took in uh, saying they're going to introduce these legal measures. uh, And they're very stark, the legal measures that they're going to bring in. They will attack what China calls treason secession, sedition, subversion. Well, some of those things like subversion are really open to interpretation. I think it's going to be a very hot summer uh, of many, many, many protests. This probably was just the first. Uh, There are a few cautions, though. The crowd was smaller today than it was last year. Uh, There could be very good reasons for that. The first It was the first big one in a long time. The police are being much more aggressive now. They're going out into the crowds far earlier uh, to try to disperse them with tear gas. There may be just utter despair at what China is doing. And also, of course, there's the coronavirus. The idea, do you really want to get together for a mass demonstration when you could be infecting people or becoming infected yourself? But... Uh, Beijing, it's a, like so much of these things, right? It's a game of chicken. And they had a choice, Taiwan or Hong Kong. The American military made clear that Taiwan maybe wasn't the thing to try right now. Well, I think they'll get back to that soon enough. And Hong Kong, it's very hard for the U.S. to come to their aid. Already, uh, China is saying this is as a result of U.S. meddling in Hong Kong. It isn't. The people of Hong Kong don't like China, Roy. Uh, yeah, really and they made that very clear. China. Yeah, and I still have my uh, my my direct message, uh, Matthew, that I received from my contact in Hong Kong yesterday, and uh, she wrote in part: "People are worried that this is the end of HK as we know it. Some people deleting their social media accounts, huge downloads of VPN." And then she uh, wrote: uh, "Protests tomorrow, so that was yesterday, Sunday." would be indicative of the development of the movement. People have all the reasons to protest, but A, it might violate the ban on social gatherings. The government extended this to prevent protests. And B, the police have a bigger budget and better deployment and weapons than last year. Well, those points by your source in Hong Kong are all accurate. They used armored trucks today. They went out at the very beginning before even a demonstration could get underway with water cannon. And then they said they were responding to violence. They weren't responding to violence. There wasn't even time for the people to turn violent before the police used violence on them. China is deeply, deeply worried about this. Uh, Hong Kong's in the Pearl Delta, you know, and uh, 
100 million people live in that area. And that area is uh, about 20% uh, bigger than Nova Scotia. Uh, it's a little bit smaller than Vancouver Island. Uh, that's an awful lot of people in a small area, most of them obviously on the mainland in cities such as Guangzhou and Shenzhen, which is right up against Hong Kong. But, uh, but Hong Kong, of course, is very heavily populated, densely populated itself. And China does not want this infection, uh, as they see it, going inland. It's uh, a fascinating time, and I think a very difficult one for the people of Hong Kong, because I, I think there will be violence, and I, the specter of mass arrests and people going into these concentration camps, basically, that China uh, operates, they did it with the Uyghurs, what if they put 500,000 Hong Kong people in education mm. camps? Uh, and they're right to cover their faces, worry about surveillance, VPN, because Hong Kong has also, there's a massive campaign to uh, use facial identity, even when people are wearing masks. Uh, they uh, have way more cameras out there to identify people. It's a chilling time. Uh, it's 1984 yes. in a lot of ways. People yes. Yes. Um, one more question for you in the minute we have left. Uh, what about Justin Trudeau? Is is he meek compared to other world leaders on the China matter? And he withdrew the only Canadian warship in the region, just as he withdrew the CF-18s from the coalition bombing of ISIS. They're saying they withdrew the warship because of COVID-19. I don't know if they're convincing anyone. What do you think? Well, he's been the weakest, or Canada's been the weakest link for years. Stephen Harper had a very healthy disdain for Beijing and the Chinese. Justin Trudeau famously said he admired their basic dictatorship. Jean Chrétien and others who have been liberals have been over there lobbying, presumably doing rather well out of that. Dominic Barton, his ambassador, has a big business background. They're, they were all China fanboys. Canada has been the last country to get off the bandwagon, and we're still only half off it. We're still, our comments are more tempered, more reasonable, but we better watch out. There are 300,000 Canadian citizens in Hong Kong, and what, a million of them in Canada. They've all got family and friends. Uh, we could face all kinds of interesting things as a result of that, because those people want freedom and they don't want to be beaten up. They don't want to go to education camps. And we as Canadians sure can understand that. Yeah, we sure can. And uh, boy, is this a lesson to uh, really cherish our freedoms and make sure that we sustain the kind of liberties and democratic freedoms that we have. Matthew, always great. Thank you for the time, sir. All the best. Thank you, Roy. I look forward to speaking to you again soon. Yeah, next week. Uh, Matthew Fisher, Adam Fisher Overseas on Twitter and 35 Years Foreign Correspondent. Two releases by the McDonald Laurie Institute uh, really got my attention, and uh, our guest is a signatory to one of them and a contributor to the second. Now, the first one is Beyond Lockdown, an open letter to Justin Trudeau, challenging the Prime Minister to, among other things, acquire, quote, the courage to lead us in a better direction. And the second one is Principles for Getting Canada Back to Work and Prosperity. Uh, the COVID-19 crisis and subsequent lockdown have left Canadians facing a dark and uncertain economic future. Uh, the release states, as unemployment climbs, the bills pile up, and economic activity struggles. 
The decisions made in the next few weeks and months will determine the trajectory of Canada's economic recovery. Uh, that was written by Professor Ken Coates of the University of Saskatchewan, Professor Jack Mintz of the University of Calgary, and among senior fellows, Philip Cross and Donald Savoie. Professor Ken Coates, Canada Research Chair in Regional Innovation at the Johnson Shoyama Graduate School of Public Affairs at the University of Saskatchewan and author of many books, including From Treaty Peoples to Treaty Nation, joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Professor Coates, good to have you with us. Thanks very much for taking the time. You know, it's always my pleasure, sir. Let me start with the uh, open letter to Mr. Trudeau, and I just, I'm just i going to read a few lines from it and ask you to please share your thoughts or to flesh it out for us. Uh, you're a signatory to the letter. Since the beginning of COVID-19 outbreak, uh, Canadians have been presented with a stark choice. Either selflessly shut down the economy to save lives, or selfishly worry about the economy and condemn thousands to a vicious illness. Uh, this view has formed the basis of the federal government's response to the crisis to this point, usually bolstered by the claim that the approach is based on science and evidence, even as the evidence changes daily and the proclamation of health officials have proven wrong countless times. Uh, it goes on to say, if it hasn't already, the government's refrain will soon wear thin with Canadians. Professor Coates? Well, I think the letter sort of says it said it all. We thought about this very carefully. Um, we have been very careful to sort of not to sort of indict or criticize the government too strongly. There's no rule book for COVID-19. There's no plan for a pandemic that we could sort of have anticipated perfectly how everything would sort of unfold. So we had to react quickly in March. Um, our view basically is that was several months ago now. Um, it's time to get back to work. And it's time for us to do, the government has done, I think, a good job of keeping us sort of... Uh, feeling relatively safe and secure. We, we don't feel that our lives are threatened uh, in any direct and immediate way. Um, so we've, we've avoided a panic that could have easily happened in March or April if that had, had been a real pandemic had started to spread across the country and really started getting people you know, ill and sick and dying in huge, huge, huge numbers. So we've done that. But we actually now need a government that said, essentially says, let's look forward into the future. And I think we need a very clear plan from the government, not sort of platitudinous observations and not sort of daily allocations on which group is going to get how much money, billion dollars this day. But in fact, a, an indication that the government has really got a thoughtful plan for restarting the economy. And there are some major sectors of the Canadian economy that are in absolute serious fear, uh, freefall. And we need to build those back up. We need to get the, the strong parts of our economy stronger. We need to get the weaker parts uh, better, but there are some that are in catastrophic shape, and we better start talking about them right now. The government has to bring us into their confidence and start to treat us as though we're sort of partners in this exercise as opposed to waiting for daily pronouncements on what problem we're going to solve today. Yeah, I've been referring to Mr. Trudeau's appearances as the miniseries, and uh, there, there, would, there was ample opportunity to deliver uh, pronouncements and programs uh, over a much shorter period of time, and then with much thought and uh, an opportunity for people to respond. In another part of this letter that I really um, keep rereading, over March and April, 3 million Canadians officially lost their jobs, while another 2.5 million were not able to work at all or had much reduced hours. Overall, employment fell by 15.7% uh, 
um, and hours worked by 27.7%. By early May, 7.8 million Canadians had turned to emergency income support from the federal government. We've become dependents. We came dependent very quickly. And in fact, it's, it's, this part worries me a lot, is how, how fast people sort of made that shift. Um, we all have our little stories of anecdotes here and there of, you know, somebody who's decided not to go back and look for a job even when they're offered one because they'll make more money on the on the government arrangement going going that's available to them. Um, I'm worried about what it's actually shown about our uh, the speed with which we've accepted dependence on the government and how you then back away from that. You know, we know we can't afford this for very long. Um, we know that as the sort of the economy starts to grow, we're going to have people needing to fill the jobs. We have vacancies already, particularly in the farming area, that are, are quite urgent. Um, and, and you're kind of frustrated by the fact that we've got this, this very generous offer by the government that was offered you know, sort of uncritically. For, for me, one of the turning points that in terms of public attitude, as I watch people talking about this, was the very generous, overly generous and un, unspecified sort of allocation to seniors. Uh, many of our seniors need help, and I'm certainly glad to see them get it. But I'll tell you, I've got friends who are making are making bad jokes about what they're going to do with their three hundred dollar check from the government of Canada, and that kind of, you, you cannot have a uh, in a time of crisis. You cannot have people laughing at the government. You can't have people mocking the government for their bad choices, and that's one of those ones that just was spectacularly uncalled for. Um, absolutely, give money to the people that need it, uh, the ones who are getting the highest level of old age security. But the idea that every senior, regardless of their income, uh, I have a friend who makes about $100,000 a year uh, in pension allocations, and, and he and his wife both got, both got $300 checks. And they're laughing about it. And you cannot have that. This is a crisis. It needs to be taken that seriously. And this is not about free money and about having the government signature on a check that comes in the mail for you. And, and as the letter states, we are loading a disproportionate share of the cost of combating COVID-19 on the young. I worry about that. I mean, I'm, you know, this is one of these interesting things. I hear people saying these things about how there's no problem with the debt. The debt can repay itself over time. And remember Mr. Trudeau's sort of very famous observation, the budget will look after itself. Budgets don't look after themselves. They have to be very carefully managed. We have blown out the budget in a way that we haven't really seen. It's even worse than, than, than uh, Trudeau Sr. back in the 1970s. And, and people understand it. In a crisis like this, you have no choice but to make those those big decisions. But we should do it reluctantly. As a family that sort of realizes they have no choice but to buy a really expensive house in, in, in the greater Toronto area, you sit down as a family and you talk through about all the things you're going to give up. You know, we're going to have to cancel the hockey, the hockey, uh, you know, uh, membership. We're going to have to make sure we can get rid of the, the golf club membership. We're going to have to not go to restaurants. Families do this. You plan it all the time and very carefully. But we've managed to be given the impression that the government has an almost inexhaustible amount of money that's available to be spent on whatever sort of projects, issues, questions, and concerns, some of which are absolutely, absolutely critical. Uh, but, but without this sort of countervailing part of saying, oh, and by the way, down the road, we're going to have to take some things away. Or down the, way, down the road, we're going to have to pay more in taxes. Or here's the kind of taxes we're going to have to implement. We're just not having a balanced conversation. And I think, you know, the, the pandemic, quite frankly, is surreal. It feels very odd to be stuck in my home since the middle of March. And, and they're basically, we've not had any social activity outside the, the three of us who are living in our house for, for a very, very long period of time. So the whole thing is surreal. 
But when you keep reading all these stories, it's financially surreal at a level that I find very disconcerting. You know, and, and I like in different provinces, Ontario's done a fairly good job with this, so is BC and so is Saskatchewan. New Brunswick's been sensational. Um, the government has done something really odd in Canadian politics. They've taken the people into their confidence. They've actually sort of described what they're doing, why they're doing, and explained the outcomes and, and the kind of plans they have down the road. I think we need that on a federal scale, and we, need it. we needed it a month and a half ago. We don't need it to today. We needed it a long time ago. And I know the work is being done. You know, some civil servants are thinking about these things, but the, the public at large needs to know what's, what's on the table. Professor Coates, uh, if I can just stay with that, that letter for just a moment longer and then look at the next uh, release that you co-wrote. The letter states, and I'm reading two lines that sort of lead off short paragraphs, we can and must do better. It is the responsibility of our leaders to defend both the health and prosperity of Canadians. Understanding this should give our leaders, including you, Prime Minister, the courage to lead us in a better direction. It does take courage political courage, I'm not sure it exists. We aren't a country known for that. We've avoided tough decisions for a very, very long time in a whole bunch of different files. But I also think the other part is, as a country, we've taken prosperity for granted. We've had a pretty good run, if you actually look back generally, from the 1950s sort of up to the present time. But historians can tell you, and that's my, my training, is that these things aren't guaranteed. And the world doesn't always get better, and you don't always get a situation where your income sort of continues to grow. And, and I think we need right now some real courage. We need to look very, hard, very strongly at what's going on. We've got some huge gaps that have developed in the Canadian economy. And unfortunately, the COVID pandemic sort of exposed all those vulnerabilities. We knew Indigenous folks were in difficulty going into this crisis, but boy, has it ever made things worse and shown you how, how bad the water supplies are and how poor the Internet coverage is and how poor the health care services and educational services are in those communities and on and on. And I, and I think we, we really need is real leadership. And that it doesn't, this is not a, a, an anti, anti the prime minister or the Liberal Party or the government of the day or anything else. We need it from all sides. We don't, we don't need special pleading. We don't need to recourse to the politics of the past. We need people to realize that the world has changed very dramatically in a very short period of time and that we need to get our equilibrium back. And for all Canadians, that means prosperity. I mean, we've, we have given the youngest generation, people just graduated from high school and are just graduating from university and college and polytechs, a real slap in the knees. Um, they've, they've, been, they've been knocked to the ground. And we know that when there's a big crisis, a big recession, that it takes 10, 15 years for most people to recover. And this is going to be worse than the last one and worse than the ones before that. So our young people are, are, should be looking and be led by people who are talking about how we're going to jumpstart the gaming economy and spark Canadian entrepreneurship and rebuild our infrastructure and get the country going again in the direction where we want it to go. But that takes courage, it takes guts, it takes political determination. And right now we're just trying to sort of paper over the edges and keep the crisis at bay. But I think we need to be looking forward. Um, looking at the uh, principles for getting Canada back to work and prosperity release, which you co-wrote, it begins the COVID-19 crisis and subsequent lockdown have left Canadians facing a dark and uncertain economic future. As unemployment climbs, the bills pile up and economic activity struggles, the decisions made in the next weeks and months will determine the trajectory of Canada's economic recovery. What do they need to do? What has to be done? 
Well, it, you know, we had a wonderful group of scholars where writers work on this particular project, and, and there's lots of good ideas. I mean, some of it is we need to get our civil service understanding what their own responsibilities and roles are and all of this. We have to restructure government for the post-COVID sort of, sort of era. Uh, we need to be very clear that we have to avoid wild experimentations. I'm personally not a fan of a guaranteed annual income. I don't think it'll work. I don't think we can afford it, and we certainly can't afford it on the heels of a grand crisis. Um, and so I think we should avoid sort of wild, wild speculation and wild experimentation in some of these kinds of, kinds of areas. We also need to realize there's a problem. Let's start talking about it. How do you take an economy that is suffering from the kind of unemployment that we have right now? And, and I don't hear anywhere near enough conversation about the massive numbers of small businesses that are closing. You can't take most small businesses are, sort of are on edge all the time. They're just barely keeping their head above water. Uh, some do very well and some do it very poorly. But look what's happened. This is about two and a half months now of being without without income. Some government programs, some loans, some subsidy support and whatever else. But we're going back into a period of great economic uncertainty. Um, I would pick one area just to sort of draw everybody's attention because it's so so nationwide. We have basically just demolish the tourism industry in this country. And tourism is way more important than most people think. This is not about flying to Florida and, and flying off to Hawaii every once in a while. This is actually about an industry that brings tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people from around the world. They take them on wilderness ad adventures and fishing and hunting trips. They come to summer cottages in northern Ontario. They, they go to the wonderful bed and breakfast along the coast in, 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 in the Maritimes. This is a massive, massive industry. And this summer, it's going to take a break, not for a week and not for a month, but basically all of 2020. And there are many, many small tourist operators who are just getting going, or perhaps they've only started three or four years ago. Uh, there's no way they can keep going without any income coming in. And yet start counting up what that means, that airfares that are not, uh, flights that are not being taken, hotel reservations that are being canceled, trips and tours that are disappearing. And I'm sorry, I only have about, ten, I only have about 10 seconds left. I only have about 10 seconds, Professor Coates. So how do we, how, are we going to do what we need to do? I, I don't think so. Um, I say that with great sorrow. I okay. mean, I think we're, we're not a bold country. Uh, we're much better at giving away money than we are at making it. And we have a we have to we All have right. to make us a national priority to get the Professor Coates, I, again. Let's make wealth creation the priority. I have no choice. The, the the satellite gets me. Thank you so much for the time. Always great talking to you. Thank you. Okay, you're welcome. Bye. Professor Ken Coates from the University of Saskatchewan. Daryl Bricker is back with us. The president and CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs and author of Next which is, in my view, just such a tremendous resource for everybody in this country. If you want to know where we're going and where we need to go and how we need to build this country, read next. It's just amazing. And I say this all the time when I talk to Daryl, but it is. It should be in every home in this country. It should be in every classroom in this country. Uh, reading uh, from an Ipsos News release from uh, March 30th. Okay, so here we are on the 24th of May. As the world enters an unprecedented period of uncertainty, Canadian households seem to be on shaky ground for weathering the coming storm. A poll by Ipsos carried out on behalf of MNP Limited, uh, carried out earlier this month, has found that Canadians are feeling uncertain about their personal financial situations due to fears over losing their jobs and worries about their current levels of debt. This has brought the MNP debt index to 93 minus 3 from the last wave in December, its lowest reading in the past three 
years. Now again, this was March the 30th that this was released, and here we are on the 24th of May. There's more in this release, more information that I want to speak with the Mr. Bricker about, but Daryl, thank you for the time. And when we look at this, just this, what I just read from the 30th of March, with the uh, MNP debt index at 93, 3% or minus 3 from the last wave in December, where are we now and what does this speak to? Uh, where we are right now is confused. Um, and uh, just like every company's uh, kind of throwing their budget uh, in, in the trash these days, I think most Canadians are, are, are sitting back and really wondering somewhat in a bewildered state about what their future is going to hold. Uh, there's a lot of concern about uh, the economy. In fact, all of our tracking, if we were to do that same survey, it just it, it's plummeted from, from that point. But the, the overall, uh, I guess, issue that, that we're addressing here is that we were not on good ground prior to this happening, and we're certainly not on better ground today. I was speaking with somebody uh, the other day and uh, talking about stores opening up again and, and you know, going out and buying things that you need. This person said to me, two months ago, I would have been able to go out and buy this item that I need, but now I don't have the money. So the store is opening up, but I can't afford to go and buy what it is I was going to buy. And uh, so I was a smart ass, and I said, well, what about your credit card? And I got two words back, maxed out. Yeah, and, and that's what we're seeing. So uh, not only is it just the average Canadians, it's small business owners, it's so many people right now that have been either knocked out of work or are on, uh, on, on the CURB program that the federal government's put in place or are looking for some sort of uh, financial stability to just get them through the next period, say for the next, for example, the next couple of months. But after that, you know, the anticipation is that we could potentially be facing a second um, uh, wave of, of coronavirus and that we could go back into the situation that we were into, say, for example, six weeks or two months ago. So even if people are holding on right now and looking forward to coming out of this, there are a lot of trepidation about what the future might hold. So even if they've got the money available, they, um, uh, they're reluctant to spend it because they don't know what's coming. Yeah. And as the government issues these uh, support programs, Daryl, all they're doing, what the federal government is doing, is going deeper into debt itself. And ultimately, who's going to pay that? It'll be the taxpayers and it'll be the next generations. So while money's coming in now, it doesn't mean that we're getting money for nothing. That just doesn't exist. And I think most people are understanding that. Uh, and, and I and I look at uh, this release again, and I just keep telling myself this was March 30th. Uh, almost half, 46%, said, this Canadians, say they're concerned about their current level of debt, a whopping 10-point jump from last December. 34% are worried uh, that either themselves or someone in their household could lose their jobs. That's up 7% or 7 points. And, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, when it comes to the proportion of Canadian households that are financially insolvent, you wrote there's some good news. The proportion of Canadians who say they don't make enough to cover their bills and debt payment is down by four points from the last wave. However, this still means that 25% say they still can't meet their monthly debt obligations. And furthermore, zooming out and considering the total proportion of those who say they are $200 or less away from insolvency, something you and I have talked about several times, Daryl, including those who are already insolvent, has only decreased by one point. It stands at 49%, half the population. Yeah, and that was two weeks into, uh, so if that one came out on May the 30th, uh, or March the 30th, the, uh, yeah. the, 
um, uh, who announced the uh, the global pandemic. I think it was on March 11th or 12th. So that was only two weeks into it. So uh, we were just getting into this idea that we were going to be shut down the way that we, we are now. And I'm sure that if we went back in and asked the, those poll results, and we've asked it many other ways since then. I, I just know that Canadians are, are, it's a fragile situation. It's almost like what we're doing right now is we're trying to get out on ice that's just freezing over. And, and there's so many cracks and there's so much uh, uh, concern about, you know, if we walk a little further out that we might plunge into cold water. That's how people are feeling right now. Does any, I shouldn't say does anybody, does a significant percentage or proportion of the national population have nothing left over at the end of the month? I mean, I think I already answered that question, but are we at, at half the population? Maybe now even more? They that's just have no more, no money left. That's basically what the survey said. We were already at that level. And, you know, for some people, maybe the CURB program is a bit of an improvement. But there's a lot of people out there who've either had to take salary cuts, even if they're still working, or uh, they've been furloughed, or, you know, other things are going on. Uh, that uh, we're all basically at this moment, unless, of course, you're a public servant and you're still still getting paid the, the way that you were before and nothing's really changed for you other than you may be working at home. Uh, anybody who's working in the private sector right now is really, really nervous. Yeah, and uh, and, just, and rightly so, rightly so. This is a very this is a, a, a this is a wake up call time. And I I just spoke with Professor Coates, and he said it's time for uh, Ken Coates from the University of Saskatchewan said it's time for uh, courageous political decisions to be made, and and it really is that time. But for the average Canadian, the average person now is like, what can I afford? Well, I don't have any money left over and the answer is right there daryl it's always uh almost a pleasure thank you very much for taking the time and 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 i keep saying this but i mean it's it's important thank you for writing next oh you're too kind i really it was an enjoyable thing to do and maybe i'll write another one at some point but boy oh boy everything's really been thrown up in the air yeah and i look forward to talking to you again thanks daryl have a great rest of My the day pleasure. thanks right bye-bye daryl bricker president and ceo of ipsos public affairs People, by and large, have told pollsters, particularly uh, told Ipsos, that we're really not ready to venture out in appreciable numbers. Uh, Only 18% would attend a sports event. That climbs to 25% if you have a household with kids. I understand that. 30-some percent would go to stay at a hotel. Only 20% would travel outside Canada if they could do it. And yet, yesterday in Toronto, at Trinity Bellwoods Park, there was this, and you've probably seen it uh, either on uh, newscast, on Global News, or you've seen it on on social media, just this absolutely incredible gathering of people that just didn't give a damn about what was going on. Everybody was standing right beside each other, and you've seen it, right? So we have, though, on the one hand, we have people telling uh, Ipsos that, you know, I'm not really ready for this. And on the other hand, we have what happened at the park in Toronto, and it's not going to be only Toronto. It'll happen elsewhere as well. We're going to come to grips with a lot of issues over the next weeks and months in this country, And let's talk about this issue of who's ready to go out and who isn't, and what is the difference between people who decide, I'm opening the front door and I'm heading out there and I'm just going to take what comes my way, and what happens, what's the difference between them and people who say, no, I'm not going out, I'm just not ready for this, and it'll happen in the same household. And and I don't know whether that'll cause problems for, for families. Dr. Frank Farley is a professor of psychology at Temple University, as you know, in Philadelphia, past president of the American Psychological Association. And Dr. Farley 
is very good to us with his time. Frank, uh, how do we contrast this? How do we deal with this? So you've got a majority of people telling pollsters, no, no, I'm not ready to go out. 18% would go to a sporting event, and that yet you have in Toronto at a park, as we pointed out, uh, this massive gathering of people, and it was as though it was a sort of a normal end of May day. What's going on? How do you assess that? <laughs> well, um, I'm glad the majority is being cautious. I mean, that is so healthy and so rational, so reasonable. You know, the idea that only 20% of Canadians would venture outside of Canada this summer for travel, uh, 80% would not. And that is bespeaks some pretty deep wisdom out there. But, uh, you know, we have among us uh, in the 21st century risk takers, and uh, it's very hard to coop up our risk takers and keep them quarantined and and keep them away from travel, from events, from stimulation, from the excitement of social gatherings. It's we are social animals, right? That's what we are. We are indeed, yes. And we're sort of working against our various, our, our, our very evolutionary imperative. Right. You know, I mean, you know, we're social. We come together. We meet people. We then have families, etc. And so this whole thing is working against some very deep, processes in our species and so the risk takers they're going to get out there and risk has become the central concept of this whole pandemic there's really two categories of risk the health risk uh, that's where it all started and then the uh, financial risk Mm -hmm. Uh, which is where it's headed right now. Something we're going to be talking about in detail on this program as we go through the show today. Frank, I I said to you a couple of weeks ago when you were were on with us that if I were at a football game, let's say a football game is being played, and I'm the guy who goes in, because you've already identified me as a risk taker before, so let's say that I walk in and I sit down at the 50-yard line. Meanwhile, there's a whole bunch of people who are waiting and they're not ready to come in because, well, they're not ready. But I start shouting back there, hey, what a great game. Oh, they just scored another touchdown. Oh, look at this, an 80-yard pass and run play for another touchdown. I, My theory is people will start to come in because they want to see what's going on. Maybe that was, tell me if I'm right or wrong, maybe that was part of the, the whole situation of the parking draw yesterday. Somebody started it, and then others followed. Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, you, you know the concept of the flash mob? Yes. You know? <laughs> And so in psychology, we have concepts like uh, social contagion, emotional contagion, social facilitation. And your description of that situation is, uh, is right on. I mean, uh, yeah, some people want to get in there. And the very fact that you would be uh, shouting these very positive things suggests that things are okay. Yeah. So they can do it. And, I'm, and that's just a hypothetical situation. I'm not saying that I'm the guy who's doing that. <laughs> Yeah. What about, Frank, what about in the home? Let's say you have, and we've had a lot of talk and there's been a lot of, well, there's been some study and there'll be a lot more about conflict in the home as people have been locked down. So now we get to the point where we slowly start to reemerge and cautiously and carefully. But then you have the risk taker and you have the person who's not the risk taker and maybe they're um, a couple, maybe they're married. One of them wants to go and the other doesn't. What's the potential dynamic here? Well, uh, you know, if it's a healthy marriage where the two know each other and they realize they have different personalities. Uh, By the way, there's a concept called assortative mating. 
And what that means is that people tend to marry people somewhat like themselves. They tend to be... In For the general, second time. You know, sort of similar in intelligence, similar to some extent in personality. So a situation like that would be one where the personalities are significantly different. And uh, one would simply hope that they have learned coping uh, strategies to get along well together, despite their significant differences. But, you know, um, there's so many complex ways to live your life. And one can go out and to the concert and the other one can stay at home. Yeah, I would create some interesting debate when the first one came home from being at the concert. Let's say there were a concert and you came back and you'd been around other people. That probably would create some interesting conversation. Here's one more question for you. When does or does economic concern override caution? Uh, well, it depends on, on a threshold. You know, um, surveys, national surveys that have been done many, many times asking people what's the most stressful things in their life. Finances is always in the top two or three categories. So it often will override many other things. And um, so, for example, in uh, the, the data you were, you were citing from, uh, what is it, Ipsos? Yes. Um, the, uh, the people who are least likely to want to travel out of the country or least likely to want to travel interprovincially tended to have lower income. They tended to be older. And interestingly, they tended to be more likely female. Um, and, but it, it makes sense. You know, travel costs. And uh, so um, th- th- this whole thing is becoming increasingly financial, and it's going to really oh, yeah. strain no our question. families. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we already know, and we'll be talking about this later on in the program, that uh, 25% of Canadians are saying they cannot meet their monthly uh, bill obligations. And uh, the numbers that we're seeing are actually quite disturbing, so we'll talk about that later. Frank, all it points out and proves is that we're very complex beings, aren't we? But we have we have this, this core need to socially interact, and that's who we are, and that, I think, is one of the reasons that we see the sorts of things that we saw in Toronto yesterday. Definitely. But, you know, we're an amazing species. We have gone through hell a million times, Mm-hmm. And we keep on ticking. We keep on ticking. Dr. Farley, it's great talking to you. Thank you so much for the time. All the best, You're Frank. You're welcome. Thanks, Farley. Dr. Frank Farley, psychology professor at uh, Temple University, past president of the American Psychological Association, and he is from Alberta. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.